Good morning. Welcome to Harvest. My name is Pastor Micah. We're so glad that you're here worshiping with us. And uh, that video is just kind of our attempt to try to maybe catch you up a little bit. Uh, if you're new with us or maybe you've come in recently to our church, we've been w- working through the book of Acts starting back in August. And so we covered pretty much everything you saw in that video in the fall. Um, and a little bit more. We even got to Saul and how he was on the road to Damascus trying to persecute Christians. And Jesus came and met him there and converted him. Um, and brought him to make more disciples of Jesus rather than persecute disciples of Jesus. And then today we're going to continue on in the book of Acts as we move into the new year with a new sub-series. And this next section of Acts for us, we're going to be looking at what does it mean to be on mission with the Spirit of God? Uh, The video kind of referenced that whenever you come to Christ, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you, and you now have God with you all the time. And the purpose of that is to move us out in supernatural power on mission for him. And we're going to see how that happens in the book of Acts, what we can learn from that, and how we can be a part of that together. So if you got your Bibles, let's go ahead and grab those and dive in together. We're going to Acts chapter 9. That's where we're going to be at today, Acts chapter 9. If you need a Bible, there's a hardback black one there on the floor around you. Look underneath the chairs. You can grab one of those and follow along with us as well. We'd love for you to do that. Um, so, you know, when I kind of think back through life, there, there are very few you know, life-changing events that I remember more vividly than first getting my driver's license. Anybody else, does anybody else that stick like in your brain, like when you finally got that freedom to be on the road, right? Like, um, I remember there was, I was, I was 15, 14, maybe even on my stepdad's hunting farm, and I would drive his little red S10 pickup uh, around the dirt tracks of the farm, just just hoping and, and dreaming of the day when I got to actually be on the real road. You know what I'm talking about? Like, we'd just be driving around. And, and so when I turned 15 and a half, that's what it was back then, I, I was like, the first day opening, as soon as it opened, we were in the spot. I was taking the test to get my permit, and uh, I had to take the test three times. But I got the permit that day um, and left. I asked my parents to drive every chance we got so I would be ready. And finally, finally, 16th birthday came. And so I made sure we were outside the highway patrol office when it opened. Like the only time I ever wanted to be around a police station at that early in the morning, right? So like we were outside the door, ready to go. Got first one to take my test, passed the test, got my license. And all of a sudden, man, it was like, I could go, I could see my friends. I could do what I wanted. There was this, there was this maturity to it. There was this fun. There was this freedom that I thought, man, this is what comes with being able to drive. I was so excited. I had this power now. And what I didn't realize was my parents were equally excited for me to learn how to drive. Um, They they taught me, because now all of a sudden, I became the extra runner in the house. Anybody know what I'm talking about right here? Like, like, hey, your sisters are at, you know, practice. Go pick them up. Or, hey, go get this ingredient that we forgot at the store. Or go run this errand across town that nobody wants to do, right? Like, so, like, all of a sudden... What I thought was freedom and power for me and what I thought was going to serve my purposes and my mission actually was also serving my parents' purpose and mission, right? They had something in mind for this as well. The same thing is true of the supernatural power of God when it enters our lives. It comes and it dwells with us and it does do something for us and it's wonderful, but God has a much bigger plan and mission and purpose for that power in us than just us, right? So that's what we're gonna see today through a couple stories here in Acts chapter nine, that God's supernatural power in me is for his mission through me. 
God's supernatural power in me. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. That's the supernatural power of God living inside of you. That is not just for you. It's for God's mission and purposes working through you as well. So what we're going to do today, I'm going to do things a little bit different. I'm just going to read this kind of whole story here. I just want to get the whole story out so we kind of have it in its context, and then we'll go back and we'll kind of break it apart into pieces. So point number one is simply this, God's supernatural power on display. I just want to show you the supernatural power of God on display through these two stories in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 32. It says, Now as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints that lived at Lydda. So we got Peter here, like superstar apostle, right? This is the guy who's starting the church, leader of the apostles, closest to Jesus. He's now finally back on the scene, and he's going to this town called Lydda, all right? And Lydda was away from Jerusalem. Peter hadn't been there before. The saints in Lydda, the, the people who are already following Jesus because we had other gospel people come through there and help them come to know Christ, they've never seen Peter. They don't know Peter. Right? They've heard about Peter. They've heard about the awesome apostle who is preaching and people are getting saved by the thousands. Like They've heard of Peter, but they've never met Peter. So Peter's coming. Like Peter's coming to our city. You can just feel the excitement in their hearts and in the air. And look in verse 33. It says, when he got there, he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. So we're introduced to this new guy, right, Aeneas. And we don't really know much about him. It doesn't tell us, is, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he a follower of Jesus? Is he not a follower? Is he, like, who is Aeneas? We, all we know is he's paralyzed, and he has been for eight years. Now, in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish thinking of this time, if you had a, a, a serious illness such as paralyzation for an extended amount of time, that was proof that there was something wrong in your life. They believed that that was the, the result of some sin or some issue and that God was punishing you. That was the theology of their, of their thinking at this time. So their thoughts of Aeneas were not good. All right? they, this was not a guy that everybody was friends with or looking up to or like, thought he was like, this guy was on, on the outside. Right? So Peter comes in, look at verse 34, and it says, And Peter said to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to Jesus. So Peter walks up to the guy, paralyzed eight years, laying on his mat, and he says, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up. It's remarkable, right? Like, I mean, and I think it's important for us to notice what he says there. He's very clear. Whose power is raising Aeneas back to walking? It's not Peter's power. He's not like, hey, I'm Peter. Get up. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk and make your bed. That's not like your mom. Like, what's with the make your bed thing? Well, crippled people in this time, they would be laying on some type of mat, right? They had a mat they would lay on, and, and if they're crippled, they're not moving much. So they're laying on this mat for days, weeks, months, maybe even years. This guy's been there for, this guy's been paralyzed for eight years. This mat is gross, right? And so when he stands up and walks, and he doesn't need the mat anymore, probably the last thing he's thinking about is, hey, I need to roll this up and take this with me, right? Like, that's not... But Peter's point is, get up, walk, and take your mat, because guess what? You don't need it anymore. Get rid of this thing. This is done. This is no longer necessary. You are completely healed. And then it says, the people in Lydda, the, that was the city, 
And then Sharon was like the surrounding region, right? It was like the, the region that the city was in. And so all the people in Lydia and Sharon, they hear about this guy walking after eight years of being paralyzed, and they all turn to the Lord. They put their faith in Jesus because the supernatural power of Jesus has just healed this man and is working in him and through him. And then what's interesting to me is, that's verse 35. Verse 36, Luke just goes right on to the next story. Like, he just keeps going. He doesn't pause. He doesn't explain anything. He doesn't try to, like, you know, relish in the moment. He just keeps going. Verse 36, now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. So Joppa is another city in the same region here. And so he's kind of going over to this, this neighboring city. He says, and there's this saint, this follower of Jesus, named Tabitha, who's also called Dorcas, which is super unfortunate, right? Like, like nobody wants that name. So you, you know, like, she was just like, you know what, just, just call me Tabby. Like, I'm good. So, but we find out here about Tabitha. It says that she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. So here we get some more information about Tabitha, a lot more than we got about Aeneas, right? She's a follower of Jesus. She's full of good works. She's full of acts of charity. This is evidence of her strong faith that she's really in with Jesus. But then she becomes ill and died, which again would have completely messed up their theology, right? They would have been like, whoa, whoa she's the good one right? Like she's, she's helping people. She's gracious. She's merciful. Like God, why, why Tabitha? Like she, she shouldn't get ill. She shouldn't, like this doesn't make any sense. And so they wash her body, which means they basically prepared her for burial, but they didn't bury her. It says they laid her in an upper room, which means that they had some level of hope that God was going to do something miraculous here, that God was going to heal her, that he was going to, because obviously this was a mistake. Right, Tabitha is one of the good ones. She should not have gotten ill and died. So God's going to fix this. And then they find out that Peter, super apostle, is just over in the next city. And he's healing people. So they send for Peter. Look at verse 38. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. So again, picture this. Peter's over here in uh, Lydda. Things are going well. He's healed the knees. People are getting saved. These, the guys show up, hey, listen, there's a saint over here. She died. It's, it's weird. Like, you need to come and help. And he's like, okay, I'll come. So he goes to Joppa. They take him into the upper room. And as he walks in, he sees Tabitha laying there still on the table. And all these women around her just weeping and crying and just in agony and sorrow because their friend and the person who's loved them and cared for them and provided for them is dead. And they're showing them their garment like, look what she made. She made this for me. This is how, this is how good she was. She doesn't deserve this. You've got to fix it. But this time Peter does something different. Look at verse 40. Peter pulled them all, put them all outside, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and, they all, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So this time, 
He doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. He puts everyone out of the room because he needs to figure out with the Lord, what, what, what do you want to do here? And so he gets down and he prays and he asks God, do you want to heal this woman? Is that what you want to do? And evidently he got an affirmative on that because he turns and he says, Tabitha, arise. And she does. She comes back to life. And he gives her his hand, he helps her up, he brings everybody in, and he shows that, man, look, she's alive. And again, when word gets out that the power of Jesus Christ has healed this woman and brought her back from the dead, many believed. Because of the supernatural power of Jesus working in and through Tabitha's resurrection. So when these stories get paired together by Luke, we have to ask why. Like, why is he telling these stories here? And I think the first thing we need to see is that God's supernatural power is clearly at work, right? Like we see that in these stories, it's clearly at work. But why and how? It's it's evident that he is doing something miraculous here, but why here? Why now? And and how 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 does all this work? What does all this mean? How does this connect to us as followers of Jesus in 2020, can we expect stuff like this? Does this still happen? Is this real for us today? Like, well, how do, what's this mean? So we're going to try to figure that out today as we dig into these two stories of God's power. Point number two, God's supernatural power is in no way subject to me. This is the first thing that we have to get clear if we're going to interact correctly in today's world with the supernatural power of God. In no way, at no time, is his power subject to me. It's subject to him. Let me show you that from the text here. The first thing is, it's not subject to the level of my faith. The power, supernatural power of God is not subject to the level of my faith. Here's what I mean by that. Look at our two examples. You have Aeneas and Tabitha. So Aeneas, as far as we can tell, not a disciple, no good works are listed, nothing he's done. Like there's no reason that we have any reason to believe that he has any level of serious faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, God heals him. Tabitha, on the other hand, follower of Jesus, beloved disciple, full of good works, showing her faith, a strong level of faith, and God heals her. He doesn't heal one and not the other. Because God's power is not subject to the level of my faith. I can't control God's supernatural power with just, if I just have enough faith, God will do whatever I say. That's not the way it works. But it's also on the other side, too little faith doesn't exclude me from God's power either. God can work when he wants to work. And a certain level of faith doesn't guarantee that God will do anything because he is in control, not me. Now, I want to give you an example here that that is just so current and relevant to the American church that I think we have to touch on it. And I just want to be clear before I even step into this. What I'm about to say is in no way trying to bash or put down or judge or 
or speak ill of any church or any pastor or any parents or family or anything, okay? I'm just using an example of something we've seen in the last two weeks that helps us better understand this passage, okay? So there's been a hashtag going around social media the last couple of weeks, um, wake up Olive. I don't know if you've seen this. Um, there was a little girl named Olive. She's about two years old, and she tragically, tragically died in her sleep. She happens to be the daughter of, um, of a couple worship leaders at a pretty big, well-known church in America and um, that has quite a platform. And so when she passed away, the mother, I believe, initiated it and decided that she wanted to start praying that God would resurrect her daughter. And so she said that, and her husband joined, and then her church and her pastor joined, and then they put it on social media, and, and people from all over the world, Christians, started joining with her in praying for this little girl's resurrection. And it's been, I think, two weeks or more now, and she hasn't resurrected, and they're now planning the memorial service and moving on. Now, great example of what we're talking about right here. So let's just kind of dive into this for a second. Theologically, what's the Bible tell us about this? What's this mean? First of all, in no way is it wrong or problematic for, God, for you to pray that God would do supernatural things in your life and in your family. There's no reason, there's nothing wrong with this mother or this father praying that God would resurrect their daughter. He's done it in the past. We see it in his word. He still has the power to do it today. If he wants to do it, he could do it. And maybe he will. Maybe he would. I don't know. There's nothing wrong. In the Bible, he tells us, pray, ask, whatever is on your heart, seek me. He gives us full license to pray for supernatural things. So that is, there's nothing wrong with that. that. That is not the problem in any way. It can become problematic when we start to pray and think about it incorrectly. So let's just kind of put some, some guardrails on this so we can stay in the biblical mandate of how we pray for something like this. One problem with that would be to assume that she or they deserve for her to be resurrected. She's only two, she's an she's a innocent child, she died before her time, and so therefore she deserves for God to do this, and so therefore we're going to pray because she deserves it and God has to do this. Or, you know, they're, they're worship leaders, they're serving in a church, they're, they're doing these great works for God. Obviously, they deserve God to heal their daughter because of who they are. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we're all broken sinners that are at the mercy of God and his forgiveness and his compassion. We don't deserve anything from him. Anything he gives us is mercy and grace, and we are thankful for it. So we can't start praying these things thinking that somehow we deserve it to happen. Second thing. It's a problem when we start to think that if we believe enough, we can make it happen. In other words, if we pray with enough faith, if we worship enough, if we, if we, if we go through all the motions, if we, if we get enough people doing it together, then God has to do it. No, he doesn't. His power is not subject to us. 
Pray with faith? Yes. Get others to join you? Yes. Do everything you can to, to, to ask the Lord in fervent prayer, but don't assume that he has to do it because you have done X, Y, or Z. It's not the way it works. Lastly, I think, and maybe most worrisome, is that it can become problematic when we turn on God if he doesn't act the way that we wanted him to. Pray for miraculous things. Pray for supernatural power, absolutely. But if God chooses to say no, that doesn't make him any less God. And that shouldn't diminish our faith in any way. We should say, yes, Lord, your will be done. And so we have to come to these moments where we pray for supernatural things with open hands saying, God, this is what I want, but ultimately you do what you need to do. And when we don't have that understanding, so many people step into something like this and they pursue this and they pray for this. And then when it doesn't happen, they are shattered by it. So we just need to be wise in how we pursue the supernatural power of God. A great biblical example of this is the book of Job. You maybe read that or heard that story. There was a man named Job who was the most righteous man in all of the world during his time. He was close to God. He followed God. He was a man after God. And God allowed him to be tested. And he lost his kids and he lost his fortune and he lost almost everything. He lost his health. He was broken. And in Job 121, this is how he responds. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's it at the end of the day. Pray, seek, ask for God to do miraculous things. But at the end of the day, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So his power is not subject to the level of my faith. The second thing we see here, it's not subject to the severity of my problems. Again, here we have two people, Aeneas, paralyzed for eight years, maybe in sin, we don't know, but like definitely major problem here in his life. Tabitha gets ill and dies and is being prepared for burial before she's brought back to life. And they don't understand why. Like these are some big, big problems. And sometimes when we get up against big problems like this, we think, oh, these, these are too big for God. Like I'm, I'm not gonna pray about this because man, God's, that's just too big. God's not gonna answer that. Is there a problem in your life bigger than death? We've seen multiple times throughout the Bible where God brings people back to life. There is not a problem in your life that is too big for the supernatural power of God. We just have to have faith enough to pray and ask. Sometimes we end up on the opposite end of the spectrum and we think that our problems are too small for the supernatural power of God, right? Well, this is just a small thing. I, I just gotta deal with this on my own. God doesn't really care about this. this he, can't, he can't waste his time on this little thing. I gotta deal with this on my own. That's not true either. That convinces us that God is somehow distant and removed from us and doesn't really care about all the details of our life, but he does. Your problems, no matter how big, no matter how small, in no way tax the supernatural, unlimited power of God. 
Your problem's not too big that God's going to run out of power before he fixes it. And your problem's not too small that he's worried about wasting his power on it. Because he has as much as he needs. And so we can pray and we can ask. But his presence and his power is never dependent on the severity of my problems. He doesn't have to show up because the problem's X big. He doesn't have to not show up because the problem is X small. It doesn't matter. God does what God wants to do. So it's not dependent on the level of my faith, not dependent on the severity of my problems. Thirdly, his power is not subject to the ritual of my actions. What's really interesting to me here is that Peter is involved in both of these accounts, these miracle accounts. But even God's power, God's power is even not subject to the great apostle Peter and his methods. In both these stories, Peter does not use the exact same thing to access the power of God, right? With Aeneas, he did it in public. He spoke directly to him. He spoke the name of Jesus in his healing, and he gave him no help. He's like, dude, just get up. And then he almost completely reverses it with Tabitha. He puts everybody outside, so he does it in private. He doesn't say anything before he kneels and prays to find out what to do. And then when he does speak to her and tells her to arise, he doesn't say anything about Jesus' name. And then as she starts to wake up, he actually reaches down and helps her get up. See, there's not some ritual. There's not like some like set steps that like Peter does, if I do X, Y, and Z, then God has to do this. It's not the way it works. Nowhere in the Bible do we see a specific ritual or if I recite a specific prayer or if I do a certain set of steps that the supernatural power of God has to show up. There is no secret code to calling up or controlling the supernatural power of God. So if any book, if any church, if any spiritual leader or spiritual system tells you that they have the perfect set of steps and, and, and rituals and things to, to always guarantee access to the supernatural power of God, run. Like, run away from that. That is heresy and that is dangerous spiritual ground on every level. Because the supernatural power of God is not subject to any human, no matter what you do or say or think or how you try to control it. His power is not for my agenda. It's not for my life. It is for him, for his glory, for his power, for his mission. Now, I just want to take a moment here. I, I, I understand that what I'm saying here could, especially if you're in the middle of a problem, if you're in the middle of something you're struggling with, it may not, you need God to show up with some supernatural power, that the way I'm speaking right now could feel cold, could feel condescending, could feel aloof, removed. But the reason I'm speaking to you so strongly is not because I don't care about the problem you're going through. It's because I've learned these truths, not just from studying a book, but from walking through some things in our own life where this became true for us. 
So I want you to have the right truth to hold on to when you walk through the stuff where you need God to show up. <clears throat> See if I can do this. Many of you know that my wife, Courtney, she um, was diagnosed in, and is a survivor of breast cancer. And um, this all kind of came about um, in the fall of 2016. And it was right before we were getting ready to launch the church. We had been through a long, hard season of just toiling and working to try to pull together enough people to start a new church. And, to, to, and God finally did it. He finally brought everybody together and we were ready to start and launch the church. And we had raised the money and we bought the equipment and we're doing the training and we have the launch, debts, launch date set for January of 2017 and we are ready to go. And then Courtney finds out that she's diagnosed with breast cancer. And it, it, was, it was a shock to us, obviously. But I'll be honest with you, when, I, when we first heard it, I was like, okay, well, it's going to be all right. Like, it's going to be small or it's going to be treatable. It's going to be easy because obviously God would not allow cancer to derail or detour this new church that he started. Like he wouldn't, he wouldn't allow this to interfere with the gospel work that's about to happen in this new church. So obviously this is going to be, this is not going to be, a, this is not, it's going to be okay. And so she went to the next appointment and the next appointment and we find out, well, no, actually it's a little bit worse than we even thought. It's a little bit more advanced than we thought. She's definitely going to need surgery. I'm um, going to have to have a full mastectomy and, and then possibly follow up with chemo or radiation depending on how much it's spread and lymph nodes and all those things. And Okay, well, that, that, that's okay. I'm sure it'll be all right. So she, she's going to have the surgery you know, early enough so that hopefully she's healed up by launch Sunday and she can still be there and be a part of it. And So we scheduled the surgery and, and, and lead up to that surgery, man, we are praying emphatically every day, like, Lord, just heal her. Like, 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 let the doctors get there and they just be gone or shrink or be, you know, not as bad as they thought or contained. Like, like we just were just praying, like, God, just do something supernatural here that this is, so this is not an interference in any way with what you're trying to do in our church, in our lives. And so we're praying, and I had the utmost faith that God was going to answer that. So we went in for surgery and she's under, she's, in, she's you know, back in the OR and they're doing the thing. And about, a, about an hour into the surgery, the doctor comes out and says, actually, uh, it was worse than we thought. They had spread and they had to take out all the lymph nodes on one side. And, but we think we got it all and, and we have hopes that everything will be fine long term. And I'll just be honest with you, in that moment, I, mean, I was shattered. God, we prayed for this. Like, I had so much faith that God was going to heal, that God was going to take it. And I was hurting for her because I knew what that meant for her long term, what she was going to have to go through. I was hurting for our family and for our church and for our future. And like, it's just like, God, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why didn't you show up here? And ultimately, she had the surgery, and then she did have to go through chemo and radiation, and all that happened. But at that moment, when God said no, it then became a question of, am I okay with this? 
I prayed for it, I believed, I had the faith, and it didn't happen. Now what do I do with that? Didn't some, I had some conversations with people and they would say, you know, like, why would God let this happen? Like, you know, you're in ministry, you're, you're planting a church, you're, you're, you're following God, you're doing all this stuff. Like, well, this doesn't make any sense. Implying that somehow we deserve that God would heal. And I understand that we didn't. We didn't deserve him to do anything. And he didn't. So then our prayers changed. Because he was still God, and he was still good, and he was still leading. So now we prayed for wisdom, and help, and strength, and, and perseverance, and to keep going. But here's what I really learned from all of that, I think. I think here's the point that relates to what we're talking about today. I think I know why God didn't supernaturally, miraculously heal my wife. As awesome as that would have been as glorious as that could have been. He knew that his name would get more glory and his mission would be further advanced if a pastor and his family and his church had to learn what it meant to walk through the pain and depend on God and let him show up in our darkest time rather than just taking it all away on the front end. And that's always the purpose of God's power. It's to advance his mission, to show his glory, to make much of his name. Not for me, not for us. It's, it's not that. When God shows up, we might benefit from it, and we usually do. But ultimately, it's not for us. It's for him and for his glory and for his mission. And that's what he achieved through that for us and I believe for this church. And so I would say it like this, God's mission comes first. So his power is subject to it and not me. God's mission, not my life, not my agenda, not my desires, God's mission comes first. So his power is subject to it, not to me, not to us. So, on the flip side of that, if it's not subject to me, point number three is this. God's supernatural power is entirely subject to his glory and mission. His power is entirely subject to his glory and his mission. Let me show you that three ways here real quickly in the text. First of all, his power is used to confirm his glory and mission. We see that through Peter. God could have God could have healed or, or raised these, per, these people from the dead with anybody, anytime, anyhow, anywhere. Like, he didn't need Peter to do this, right? Like, God could have done this any way he wanted to. But in both cases, he waited until Peter got there to do the miracle. Why? Because when Peter got there, it wasn't just a miracle for miracle's sake. Peter then connected the miracle to the gospel message of Jesus Christ so that many people came to be saved and put their faith in him. God was confirming, this isn't just a miracle for a miracle, this is a miracle for my glory and for my mission. 
and he did it through Peter. That's the way it always works. Supernatural power confirms the supernatural Messiah, message, and mission. God uses his supernatural power to confirm in our lives, in our world, in our church, his Messiah, his message, and his mission. And he's doing that here with these two stories. The second thing is that he uses it to clarify his power and mission. One thing that these two stories share is that both of the healings happened immediately. Right? Aeneas, he tells him, get up and walk, and he immediately gets up and walk, it says. He, He didn't naturally and gradually heal up over time, and then all of a sudden, boom, he could walk again. This was instantaneous. This was miraculous. It was clearly God doing something. With Tabitha, she didn't gradually awaken from a coma, right? Peter says, arise, and she sat up, and she was back. God was showing beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was his power at work. You know, sometimes today, when miracles happen, and I think even back then, those who don't believe, who don't think that God has this power or uses this power, whatever their reason is, always try to come up with this other story to explain how it happened. Well, obviously this happened and that happened, and they come up with all these details and they, and they, they create this whole narrative about how it's not miraculous and how it can all be explained. And what's striking to me is that so often those stories, those details that they put together are so abstract and so obscure and so like one in a billion that it takes more faith to believe that this happened through some other logical means. And it says, you know what? God's an awesome God and he just does some supernatural things sometimes. And I believe God does this to clarify his power in these moments so that we will put our faith in him rather than in ourselves, rather than in the things of this world, rather than in all the other stuff that we use to try to explain our lives. We would just be like, God, no, you're bigger and you're better and you're stronger and this is you. So he uses it to confirm and to clarify and then lastly, he uses it to convert. To convert more disciples for his mission. In both cases, it says that they all believed, or many believed, that God used these miracles to bring people to saving faith. Listen, we believe God is a sovereign God. He's in control of all things, which means he allowed Aeneas to be paralyzed. He allowed Tabitha to get sick. He allowed Tabitha to die. He could have stopped all of it before it ever even started. So why did he wait? Why did he let him get paralyzed? Why did he let him get sick and die? Why did he wait until now? Because... He was going to use Peter and the healing to bring many more people to Jesus Christ. To make more disciples. To advance the mission. That's what the miracles are for. God's supernatural power in me is for his mission through me. It's not just for my benefit, although it's oftentimes I do benefit from it. Praise the Lord. That's his grace in my life. But ultimately, it's not just for me. It's to be used to bring more people to Jesus Christ. Some of you have your own miracle stories. You have those stories in your life where like you were in that car wreck and you should have died, but God somehow protected you. Or that child you had that was at the end of their rope, somebody got to them at the very last second and they finally came back 
into the family or back to the Lord or, or that, that health problem you had that God healed or that financial need that God came in the 11th hour and met it. You have those miracle stories and some of those, they brought you to faith or at least they strengthened your faith. And that's good. Others of you, you're like, well, I don't have, I don't have one of those stories, Micah. I just kind of have the regular mundane church kid, grew up in the church, heard the God, you know, did thing. Or I went to some conference, I heard the gospel the first time, and I said yes, and now I'm here, and I don't have this big miracle story. Well, don't, don't dismiss it so quickly. Because I think whenever we get down to it, every gospel story is a miracle story. You understand that the heart of the gospel is that God brings dead people back to life. That's the whole gospel. That each one of us, all humans, that we were born dead in our sins. The Bible says that the wages of sin are death. That because we sin, because we rebel against God, we deserve his wrath, we deserve hell, and we are headed for an eternal death. And because we are dead in our sins, Ephesians 2 says it like this, 2-1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Because we were dead in our sin. You know what dead people can't do? Make themselves alive. You ever notice that? Like, dead people can't bring themselves back to life? We couldn't fix our sin problem. We were dead. And so God sent his son, Jesus, to come and live a perfect and sinless life. And then to go to the cross and die a sinner's death. To stand in our place and to be a substitute and take all of our sin, all of the wrath that we deserve, the death that we deserved, he put it on himself. And he died in our place and he went into the grave and then three days later he rose back to life to prove that he was God and to say, listen, if you'll put your faith in me, I can take care of that dead sin issue. I can make you alive again. I can give you new life if you'll follow me. Ephesians 2 goes on in verse 4 and 5. It says, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It is only by the grace of God that any of us are taken from dead in our sin to alive in Jesus Christ. And that is a miracle, supernatural power of God every single time. And if you haven't experienced that yet, if you have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ above everything, above all else, like just Jesus, that's all. If you haven't done that yet, man, do that today. Let him take you from dead to life in Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, you need to know that. You need to believe that. You need to live that, that you are now alive in him and freed from the death of your sin. That should affect everything you do, everything you say, every relationship you have, every dollar you spend, every day you work, all of it should be consumed by the reality that you are now made alive in Jesus Christ and otherwise you would still be dead in your sin. God's miracle of grace in my life is meant 
to move me out on mission. That's the reality. That death to life experience is to give me a heart and a desire and a a passion to pursue Jesus and to pursue his mission to bring more people into the kingdom, to make more disciples, to see his name made great among the peoples of the earth. God's supernatural power in me is for his mission through me. Every time. His power in me is for his mission through me. Do you believe that? If you're a follower of Christ, first of all, do you believe that the supernatural power of God is living inside of you? If you're not a believer, do you believe that it can come and change you and bring you back to life with God? If we believe that, then we should be walking in that. And if we don't believe that, then I would challenge to say, you're not actually walking with Jesus at all. Because it all hinges on this. It all stands on the fact that God comes to dwell in us and work through us and we get to experience his supernatural power and presence every single moment of every single day. Friends, if we're going to follow him, if we're going to be people, if we're going to be Christians, if we're going to be at the church that is serving the mission and the glory of our God, We have to be doing it with the Spirit in the power of Christ and with hearts that are committed to being alive with him. We were dead and he has resurrected us back to life so that we can follow him from this day forward. Let's stand. I'm going to pray. Let's commit ourselves to that today. Let's just... Let's just recommit ourselves to that. Let's, let's give our hearts again to the Lord in this way. And let's sing and respond to his great power in us. Heavenly Father, Father God, you are so good and gracious to us. Lord, we bow before you this morning in humble worship because are the all-powerful, supernatural God of all creation. No one is like you. Lord, bring that power to bear in our lives in such a way that we will follow you in greater faith and obedience. Father, make us alive today in you. Resurrect our hearts once again, Lord, that we believe and that we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. your power move in us and through us to accomplish your mission, Lord, to bring more people to know you, more people to follow you, more people to worship you. Lord, please, once again, show your resurrection power through us today. I pray all this in Christ's name.